We still believe in revival. We still believe that, which I remember when I was 16 years old, I was overwhelmed that God could love me and that God would bring his love to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And certainly, as we come to this uh, moment to preach a message on Cornerstone, the covenant community of truth and love, we come to this book that we have read most of it already in a beautiful way. First John is kind of this uh, fascinating book that it has that kind of circular Hebrew kind of way of going around and around the same truths, truth and love, and it just chapter after chapter circles around and around the gospel it begins with of truth of how Christ has come and yet unfolds how we are to love one another. And it is a, a beauty of the scriptures that uh, we have that circular covenant style of First John. And I would ask a few questions as an introduction to this message this morning. And I think questions that are important when we think of having a church covenant together as the people of God. First of all, why a church covenant? And I would answer that, I think, in a way which uh, it is the reality that God has given us his covenant. The whole of scripture, in one sense, is his covenant book for us. And it unfolds this wonderful covenant that is in Jesus Christ. God has cut a covenant for us, with us. It's God who's taken the initiative. He has given us this covenant. If you are one who has come to trust, not just in the facts of Jesus Christ, but you've come to trust or believe into Jesus Christ, he is that covenant fulfillment and the covenant himself. And so we have this covenant given to us by the Lord. We are into him. And the second question would be one that I think uh, is important to realize the essence of this covenant. Yes, it's we will be his people and he is our God, but there's that sense in which I think we want to deal with what is the essence of this covenant. That lawyer asked the question long ago, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And of course, we know we could say it together. The love of the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And the second is like it in the sense to love our neighbor. They go together. And there's this loving the Lord and loving our neighbor that goes together. And great importance to have the answer to that question. The very essence of the covenant is loving God and to love one another. And I think the second, or maybe the third, I should say, question is, what is the balance of these things? And it's first of all, that we would love him above all things. And then that comes for us to love one another, to love our neighbor. You don't have the one without the other. They go together. There is a wonderful balance with that. And, uh, we have extremes sometimes, people grabbing hold of one part of that and holding to that and not really practicing the other. 
And in the scriptures, there's a wonderful balance of priority first with the Lord, and then that flows that we love one another. And then the question, is it a new covenant in the sense of something altogether new for Cornerstone? And no, we have been practicing living under the covenant of Christ for more than 40 years. And there's a beauty, though, that we want to practice this more openly and have us to acknowledge our relationship first with the Lord and then with one another. To do that, I think as elders, there's been the the expression that we need to have publicly acknowledging our relationship with the Lord and with one another in love and what this means and to practice that, pledge that publicly at times of Holy Communion, at times of our membership meetings and to have that as something very real and public for us. Yes, and then for whom is that? And in one sense, it's for members, but it's for all who are members of the body of Christ. That's the reality that it's there. It all begins with that wonderful love of God. There's a beauty there. And I want to say that I think as we go to 1 John, It's one of the simplest books. Maybe a few of you who've taken New Testament Greek, we can still kind of work with 1 John fairly well. It's simple, clear, and it repeats over and over and over again. It's almost this circular thing. He's already said that, but why does he say it again and again and again? Because we need to hear it again and again and again. So we begin, the first point of this message is God is love. Simple, clear, something that is so wonderful that it's all through Scripture. Yes, we've been hearing something of Isaiah in these days, and we'll come to that wonderful passage in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. And there's a sense, and when you read about who God is, there's that wonderful sense of knowing that, yes, he is the one and only he is eternal. All the kings and all the great wondrous kingdoms of this world, they fade into, they, they disappear. He is eternal. He is sovereign upon his throne. He is holy, holy, holy. Yes, he fills the whole earth with his glory. He is the triune God who calls us. But in all of this, the scripture says very simply, God is love. In his very nature of being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love. And I believe there is importance to that, that we have as a church sought to emphasize that. I think uh, I was reminded seeing someone here this morning that we, we sang this hymn that is so beautiful of the love of God. We had a wedding out on a, a basketball court, about 400 people from different countries, and, and we had Tom Olmstead sing this hymn, O Love of God, Horatius Bonar's hymn, How strong and true, eternal and yet ever new, uncomprehended, And unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought, 
O love of God, how deep and great, far deeper than man's deepest hate, self-fed, self-kindled, like the light, changeless, eternal, infinite. I think it's important to emphasize God is love. But it's also with that, right on top of that, to realize that God's love is covenantal. We began to say that God has given us the covenant. If we go back into the very beginning of God's revelation to us, we have Genesis chapter 15, and it has this amazing scene, very dramatic. It's so dramatic that if you study what's going on there, there's what we call the cutting of the covenant. God takes the initiative. In fact, if you look closely at what's going on, Abram is in a deep sleep. It's not Abram that's doing this covenant. It's God who takes a heifer, a young cow, and he divides it in two pieces, and he puts half on one side and half on the other side. And then he takes, yes, a goat, and he cuts it in two, and he puts each half on each side. And there's a ram, and he cuts it in two. And then it describes how with his darkness and all that's about, there's this smoking pot that passes between the halves. And as we study all the way through the Old Testament and understand God's covenant from Jeremiah, that God is invoking upon himself, that if he would not be faithful to his covenant that he has cut, that he took the initiative with, the source of it all, of his love. He is invoking upon himself dismemberment. These are the very animals of the sacrifices in the temple. These are the very animals that he is invoking upon himself that he would suffer if he were to break and violate his covenant with us. But we know the whole story, don't we? We're the covenant breakers. He took the initiative, and he also takes the initiative in another sense that's beyond our understanding. As you look at this passage, it's so amazing that he cut the covenant, that he made the covenant with us. And it happened in such an amazing way that we have to see that the whole source of it all is God and God alone. How important that is. And then it tells us that he draws us with loving kindness. How beautiful the children singing to us as we began the service that if you're thirsty, come to him. If you're hungry, come to him. If you're lost, he'll come to you. Jesus, strong and kind. There is a wonder and awe of the source of this covenant that has been cut was given by God and God alone. It's what we call God's electing love. It's beautiful. Drawn with loving kindness, the wonder of this passage, let me read it to you afresh. First John chapter 4, here are these words, beginning with verse 7. Beloved, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. 
and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among you, among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, hutas, ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we begin with the love of God. But then it progresses The love of God is manifested. That's the second step in this. The love of God, eternal, manifested right now in time. As the English Standard Version has it, that love was manifested. It was shown. And I would say to you there's such great importance to this. And I would give to you the three points. There's much more here, but three points to grab hold of this. God's love manifested. Verse 9, we have there that we know his love. How? Not by our feelings, not by somehow or another our philosophy, or it's not that I think like this and therefore God must be like this. All of that is to be realized before all of us that sin has affected our way of feeling, our way of thinking, our logic. It has affected all of us. And we need to have a written, concrete demonstration of the love of God. And it's given to us in Jesus Christ with such clarity. Sin has affected all of our thinking, but God has manifested his love to us with clarity. Now, there's a big word here. If you have the ESV, it uses the big words, and it has this word propitiation. Now, I I had the privilege, oh, it's been a long time ago, I think it was about 1975 in Bogota, Colombia, uh, John Stott was speaking to a group of university students in Bogota, Colombia, and Rene Padilla was translating, and I'm the only person there that, uh, well, I had English, and uh, so when John Stott was not speaking or taking a nap, we were talking. And we talked about what became, I believe, one of his great books. It's called The Cross of Christ. And in that book, he explains propitiation. That this word, this word that's in the Greek language there, as it's used, it has to do with not just wiping away sins, expiation, but it's a word that's used that has to do with wiping away the very, doing away with, removing the wrath of God. The scripture teaches us that all who are sinners are underneath below the wrath of God. It's a horrendous thought. 
the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ is the one who came. And in God's wonderful love being manifest in him, he propitiated. He removed the wrath of God from us. We being sinners. It's an amazing thing to think that somehow or another now, as Zephaniah 317 has it that he sings over those who are his people. God sings loudly, it says, over those who are his. What a change. And it comes about through this manifestation. This propitiation takes place through what Christ did for us on the cross. There's something here of what we would say of substitutionary atonement for us in our place, on our behalf. Jesus paid it all. It's real what he did on our behalf. He fights the powers of hell. He pays the price for our sins and removes the wrath of God. That's amazing grace because we didn't deserve it. In fact, we merited God's wrath. It's good news. In Christ, God's wrath is removed. He does it all in our place for us. He satisfies God's wrath. Why? That's quite a question. Why? Maybe somehow or another we were, you know, some here we could say are lovely. Some of us aren't. Somehow or another, we could think some were deserving, but the reality is none of us in God's sight deserve this amazing event of God's love manifested. It's not that we were good. It's not that some of us worked harder, so therefore we have this forgiveness. We helped him out a bit in this. There's something here that God manifested his love when you know it all, when we were yet enemies of God, when we were without strength, when we were still sinners through and through, Christ died for us. That's what we call grace. Don't need to put a word in front of it. Grace. Amazing. God's grace. It's that wonderful sense that I'm obnoxious, unlovable, irritable, irritate others. Some people don't love me at all, and some love me because, not sure why. But God's love came to me being all of that, and he gave his son for me. I do believe we call that almighty grace. Almighty grace is that which saves sinners like I am like all of us are. That's the real hope. We love because he first loved us. Before our birth, before any works we would have done, or as Paul writes with such precision, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, Paul writes, but because of him who calls grace, amazing grace, 
that saves a wretch like me. That's what it's all about. God takes the initiative from eternity past to save sinners such as we are. There's progress in this. God is love. God manifests his love. And then he manifests his love so that we can show that to one another. God's love manifested to one another. True love will align itself with those who weep, with those who rejoice. It will be a transforming work of God. There's this logic that's here in the passage. Uh, verse, the verses that are there before us, it uses this word that ought to do this. Now, when we spoke before that it's a balance, very important. Somehow or another, if you don't have the love of God, you're never really going to have that love one to another. That love that's genuine and real to experience that love. We believe there are those, and it's not just a belief, it's a reality. We have those who, boy, they, they have grabbed hold of certain truths and they can exalt the glory and wonder and majesty of the sovereignty and the grandeur and glory of God's holiness and all of these wonderful things. And they have wonderful libraries and it's just tremendous. And they can sing the doxology and yet treat other brothers and sisters without love. Something's terribly wrong with that. I want to read to you something that I think is a bit comical, I guess, if it weren't so sad. Um, it's called The Bridge. I sometimes use this in Spanish just because it illustrates so well that there are those who can hold all kinds of good doctrine and then turn around and not be loving. How can it be that we understand in glory and grace and not be gracious? It, it's wrong. So, listen to the bridge. I always enjoy it, even though I've read it many times. He says, once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic. He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. And yet, I've seen it happen. Those that I know, they believe in these great truths of grace, and then they're not gracious. 
And we need to be reminded that we live together as Christian community and we believe in the grace of God and therefore we're going to live with each other with grace. It might even be, it's good for us to look back, some of us can look back 60 years and see how we were learning things and be patient with others. The great confessions and and creeds, great books, libraries, we can still be muttering like the Pharisees. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. There's few things that can do more damage to a community than Christians not being gracious with each other. So as we come to think of these things, there's a reality that if we really believe in grace, we ought to practice grace with each other. My dear friend who is with the Lord, Harold Barrington, taught me this little saying. I think it actually belongs to someone else by the name of Jack Hibbs, but Harold Barrington taught it to me. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. And certainly we can all say, hey, that person is full of himself. And you don't know my wife. You don't know my, my kids, my husband. Uh, these people have offended me. You don't know. They don't deserve. You hear that word? They don't deserve my being gracious to them. That's insanity. We didn't deserve God being gracious to us. And then we say, well, they don't deserve. Why a covenant? Why a covenant? The whole Bible, in one sense, is God's covenant to us. First John, we see the wonderful way in which it goes around and around, truth and love, and that we are to be a community of truth and love. Why a covenant? Christianity. Christianity means community in Christ. The Bible is about loving God and each other in covenant community. Why are we presenting this membership covenant? That we would have reminders. First, the principles and responsibilities to acknowledge these publicly together as the body of Christ. That we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Another reminder is needful that all of my righteousness, all of my righteousness is alien righteousness. It comes from the one who knew no sin, who was made to be sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. And my brothers and sisters, that's the only righteousness they have, even when I see their unrighteousness, even when they wrong me, even when they're obnoxious to me, or when I'm obnoxious to them, we are to love one another. A reminder that we are to be those who really do have that sense of not comparing ourselves with others and thinking, well, at least I'm not as bad as she is or he is. And we begin to compare. It's Christ's righteousness. 
and he tells us not to compare ourselves with one another. We're not wise if we do that, Paul tells us. And there's that sense in which we're to be ready to suffer for others. We are to manifest God's love even with sacrifices on our part. That's real Christianity. I believe that it's part of what we call the Reformed faith. Truth without love always ends up being ugly. And love without truth really doesn't have any substance to it. All that God will give us, that unity in that sense that God gives it. I believe we have a beauty here at Cornerstone that's very special. And yet, take heed when you stand lest you fall. There is a sense in which there's a target on the back of all who are part of this unity in Christ. Especially those who are leaders. There's a target. The evil one would like to bring us in disunity. So truth and love go together. We might call that evangelism 101. If we're going to see the darkness dispelled, we need to have that shining light of truth and love going together. That's, yes, evangelism 101 to reach the world. It begins with that love of God manifest in Christ that's so powerful and real how we treat one another is evangelism 101 it's essential to the reformed faith that ought is love one to another there is a certain forgiveness that is there how are we to have our hearts tuned to that love. It's not we're going to be unified no matter what. It takes something much more than laying down the law. It won't work. Those who have children that you've raised, especially if there's more than one, you know you lay down the law, but there has to be something deeper as you parent for them to be with unity. There was beautiful word that we had for the whole of the congregation uh, a book let's see if I remember its title gentle and lowly I believe is the right title and by Dane Ortland that we went through as a congregation and he wrote another book and he has a comments on Psalm 133 and I'd like to read just a few of those comments that you would hear this word that's important Psalm 133 is that which we sang in the very beginning of our worship together. Dane writes, he says, This is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth, when all divisiveness, strife, and harsh disagreement will melt away. To be in meaningful unity with others is in fact a reflection of the triune God himself, who has dwelled eternally in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Truly, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then he asks this question, how do we find such unity? He replies, the whole Bible gives us the answer. Hinted at 
in this psalm, unity comes where the Lord has commanded the blessing. Unity comes from the Lord. That is, not from pursuing unity itself, but from pursuing God in his book, in his word. And then he gives a quote, and let me end with this quote from A.W. Tozer. And I do believe there's significant truth here that's helpful for us. Tozer writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity, conscious, and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Walk with God. Seek him. As you do, you will find relational avenues opening up that will take you into a fellowship deeper than what could otherwise be possible. So as we bow before the Lord in prayer, we are going to, after this prayer, have a moment to read together, and we would invite all of you to join in this church covenant, this covenant for those who are in the body of Christ. Specifically, we have it for those who are members, but others who would, as Christians, want to join with those words. They're important words. And so let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray for that working of your Holy Spirit. Bring, O Lord, to our midst that which we believe is revival, that times of refreshing from your presence. We ask, O Lord, you'd touch our hearts afresh as we would read, pledge, ponder, acknowledge your covenant made for us, given to us, cut for us, that Jesus Christ fulfilled completely. We ask now, Father, that in these few few moments together that you would touch our hearts afresh with Jesus Christ as the Lord of the covenant, in whose name we pray, amen.